I would ask if you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we read the passage for this morning. Um, Genesis 15. Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and, and he counted it to him as righteousness. But he said to him, I, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you will go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried in a good old age. They sh and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of, e of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray again together. Our Lord and our God, as we look at Genesis 15, Lord, we see things that are strange to us, things that are foreign to us. We see things that, that are, are, are very different from our experience. Yet, Lord, when we begin to understand what is really happening here for us as Christians, this is our experience. Lord, I pray that, that um, you would empower me through the work of your Spirit and in our hearts to see these things, to see these realities with the eyes of faith. They would help us to see in Genesis 15 the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
Last week we left Kedorlaomer, or we left Abraham victorious over Kedorlaomer and the coalition army of invading kings who had, had plundered their way through the promised land. And in the process, taking Abram's nephew Lot captive. So Abram was victorious over these pagan kings. But, but even greater than that, he was victorious over the temptation that came from another pagan king. He was victorious over the temptation to enter into a bargain with the wicked king of Sodom to receive a reward from him. In Genesis 14, we, we see no direct speech, no direct words from the Lord. But it's clear all the way through that, that Abram was behind the Lord all the way, granting him victory. He was the one who gave Abram victory. Victory over his enemies and victory over temptation. This is a fulfillment uh, of the Lord's call and command to Abram in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. As the Lord said to Abram, Go out from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This promise that the Lord made to Abram centered on two things. A land and an offspring. That, that was the beginning of what theologians call the Abrahamic covenant. The, the administration of the covenant of grace that God makes with Abraham. I think it would be helpful to review for a few moments what, what a covenant is. So we talked about with the kids, a, a covenant is a formal and binding agreement between two parties with blessings and obligations. And again, we saw an example of a covenant yesterday when, when Luke and Bree joined together in the marriage covenant. Church members here have, have joined together in a covenant with this local church. God deals with his people through covenants. Theologian Louis Burkhoff said this about covenants. God and man do not appear as equals in any of these covenants. All of God's covenants are of the nature of sovereign dispositions imposed on man. God is absolutely sovereign in his dealings with men and has the perfect right to lay down the conditions which the latter must meet in order to enjoy his favor. The first covenant that God made with man was the, the covenant of works, the covenant that God made with Adam in the Garden of Eden. The, the covenant that, that said, um, you can eat from, from any of the trees uh, of the garden, but, but of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. It, it's a covenant of works because the terms are essentially obey and live or disobey and die. We know that Adam broke that covenant and, and brought down the, the curse on himself and on all of his descendants. But God, in his mercy, immediately instituted the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is, is far superior to the covenant of works because the Lord does all that needs to be done for his covenant partners in order for them to be blessed. We see this, this, the beginnings of the covenant of grace in Genesis 3.15. As God cursed the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. 
you shall he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse is known as the, the Proto-Evangelium, the, the first gospel. The seed of the woman is at war with the seed of Satan. And ultimately, the, the seed of the woman points to Jesus Christ who, who crushes Satan's head. But Christ has his heel bruised in the process. And, and so all of redemption history is, is a playing out of this war between the seed of the woman and, and the seed of the serpent, between the, the children of God and the children of the devil. And all of this continues all the way through the scriptures until that final battle that we see in the book of Revelation. We saw the covenant of grace repeated with Noah in Genesis 9. And we're seeing it repeated again here with, with Abram. And we see this again and again. It's, it's really, in this covenant, we really see it. It's in process from, from Genesis 12 and 13, here in 15, but also in 17, where the, the sign of the covenant, that of circumcision is given. And, and then it's reiterated again in Genesis 22. And it's going to be reiterated again and again with, with Abram's offspring, with Isaac and with, and with Jacob and so on. Then it's, going to, it's also going to be seen with, with Moses and, and with David, and, and it culminates in the new covenant, the, 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 the new covenant in the blood of Christ. So here in, in Genesis 15, we, we see this progression in the revelation of the covenant of grace as the, the promises of land and descendants are clarified and, and the confirming rite of animal sacrifice is performed. John Calvin said that the covenant of the fathers is so far from differing substantially from ours that it is the very same. Only the administration varies. In, in other words, Christians today are still under the covenant of grace. It's the same covenant as the covenant that, that God made with Abram. And going back even with Adam and, and also with Noah and Moses and so on, it's, only, it's, it's carried out differently. It's the same covenant. It's a covenant of grace. This covenant of grace, again, it, it exponentially de develops and increases and intensifies to the new covenant in Christ's blood. Friends, Old Testament believers were saved in the same way that you are if you are here this morning as a Christian. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In the covenant of grace, God is upholding both sides of the covenant. He fulfills the obligations and he pays the penalty for covenant breakers. Friends, our God is faithful. So here in Genesis 15, the, the Lord appears before Abram in a vision to, to remind him of the covenant and to ratify the covenant. So the Lord, Lord confirms his promise to Abram by his word here and, and then by a, a covenant ritual. The message here is that, that Abram can trust the Lord. It's the main point of this passage. We're going to see Abram's faith in the Lord's word and the Lord's guarantee of his faithfulness. This passage really centers around dialogue between the Lord and Abram. And the first, this is the first such dialogue in the scriptures. The Lord speaks to Abram, and Abram replies with questions. This chapter is divided into two sections. In the first main dialogue is in verses 1 to 6, 
where the Lord promises Abram an heir. And the second is in verses 7 to 21, where the Lord confirms the covenant. So in the first dialogue, the Lord promises Abram an heir, in verses 1 to 6. In this section, the Lord initiates a conversation with Abram, revealing who he is and how he will bless Abram. When Abram questions him, the Lord says specifically that a son will come from Abram's own loins. Abram is declared to be righteous because of his faith. Verse 1, we see the Lord's self-revelation and a promise of reward. So again, look at this, that the Lord appears to Abram. We we need to stop for a moment and, and think about this because this does not happen very often. Something very special is going on here. This is a a theophany. This is a a divine appearance, essentially revelatory words spoken by the Lord to Abram. Now, the, the physical representation here is not the focus. The message is the focus. The first words we hear from the Lord to, to Abram are, fear not. Fear not. Now, maybe you're wondering, what, what is it that Abram is fearing? After all, Abram has just demonstrated a distinct lack of fear in, in fighting against Kedoleomer and, 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 and his powerful army. So what is it that Abram is fearing here? Friends, Abram is fearing the Lord. Fear is is a natural and rational response to coming into contact with deity. He is face to face with the Lord. And the the lack of of fear of the Lord is, is really one of the primary symptoms of the insanity of our culture. Our culture has, to a large extent, completely forgotten and disregarded the fear of the Lord. And, and sadly and shockingly, it's, it's, even, it's even lacking in many churches. May God give us a holy and reverent fear of Him. Theophanies usually evoke a fearful response, and we see this repeatedly in Scripture. Think of, of John in Revelation 1.17 when he saw the Lord Jesus. He says, when I, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But the Lord responded here in Genesis 15, very similarly to what he said to, to John. John says that he laid his, his right hand on me saying, fear not, fear not. Those who have a holy fear of the Lord need not fear anything else. The Lord reveals himself as Abram's guardian. He says, Abram, I am your shield. I'm your shield. Those who dwell in the arms of the Lord dwell secure. They can take courage in any circumstance, in any external circumstance because of their eternal circumstance given to them by grace. Uh, Psalm 18.2 reinforces this concept that the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Preach this truth to yourself about who God is in your life, fellow Christian. 
Almighty God is sovereign over all things, everything and everyone. He is sovereign over every single moment of your life. I love Katarina von Schlegel's hymn, Be Still My Soul. The, the second verse says, Be still my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still my soul, the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. The voice that is speaking to Abram here in Genesis 15 is the same voice that calmed those wind, the wind and the waves on the Sea of Galilee. The Lord continues, Your reward shall be very great. And the Lord here is adding to his, his earlier promises. He's, he's expanding and clarifying them. He's, he's saying, trust me. I am faithful to deliver on my promises. If you remember at the end of, of chapter 14, how, how Melchizedek had blessed Abram and, and really encouraged, and, and that was an encouragement to Abram to refuse the gifts of the king of Sodom. And though even as the, the victor, Abram had had full rights on, on the spoils of war. But what the Lord promises is immeasurably better than the gifts of a wicked king. The, the reward looks ahead to the, the gifts of, of descendants and a land that's already been promised. But in these, it looks ahead even further still to an infinitely greater reward, to a, a better country, to a, a heavenly one, and to a, a greater offspring. The one who would not only bless Abram and his family, but, but all of the families of the earth. In verses 2 and 3. Abram responds to the Lord's promise. O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Abram is lamenting that the promise of a seed has, has not yet been fulfilled, and that it's a servant who he says is going to inherit his wealth. And so he's saying, well, what's the point of an inheritance, of a blessing from you, if there is no one to inherit it, if there's no heir? Now, Abram has already seen a, a partial fulfillment, a, a down payment fulfillment, so to speak, of, of the promise of land, hasn't he? Where, where, where God has, has, has taken him through the promised land and, and then how he, in, in chapter 12, and how he came back to the promised land in, in chapter 13 and and. Um, and how he, in chapter 14, he, he made war with the, the enemies who were, were, were conquering through the promised land. This was, a, was a, like a down payment of a future fulfillment. And so Abram's seen some of this. But, but there's not even a glimpse of an offspring. Remember how old Abram is. He's around 75. And his, his wife, Sarai, is around 65. Humanly speaking, it's impossible for him to have an offspring. But this is an unbelief on, on Abram's part. Abram believes God's word but needs reassurance. Like the father of the, the demon-possessed boy in, in Mark 9, he, he says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. 
The Lord is going to, is going to deliver on that promise, but it's, it's going to be six more chapters and at least 25 years before the arrival of Isaac, the promised son. Think about myself when, when it comes to, to God's promises and, and about the people here. And I'm reminded of ways that, that we as believers can become restless waiting for the promises of God. If you, if you find yourself restless in, in these things, well, first of all, you need to distinguish the difference between the Lord's promise and, and a personal desire. Many here have a, a strong desire for the salvation of their loved ones. It's a good desire. But the Lord hasn't necessarily promised you that. Now, nevertheless, you, you, you still, by God's grace, continue praying for them, still continue witnessing to them in hopes that the, that the Lord will indeed save them. Many here have a, have a strong desire to overcome sin. Well, this is another good desire, and this really is a promise from the Lord that, that you will overcome sin. The Lord will give you victory, but probably not on your time frame. And realize that a, a full victory over, over sin is not going to come until Jesus returns or, or takes you home. Friends, we have not been given the same promises as Abram. We haven't been, we haven't been promised a, a physical country or a physical, or a physical land. But like Abram, we've been promised a better country, a heavenly one. And, and we've been promised a, a, a greater offspring, the Lord Jesus. I know some elderly saints who, who have, have grown in some senses, uh, impatient, waiting for, waiting for their departure from this life because they're eager to go to heaven. And, and many here are, are so troubled by, by the wickedness of the world around them that they're eager for the return of Christ. Friends, that was, was even true, in, we see this even in, in the epistles, soon after the, the, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, that that Paul and the apostles and the, the churches were already eagerly anticipating. They were going through, through severe trials and they were eager for the promised return of Christ. Now, they didn't see it in their day, but we might see the return of Christ in ours. But notice that the Lord's response here to, to Abram. When, when Abram asks about this, the, the Lord doesn't get angry at Abram. He gives Abram the assurance that he's asking for. In verse 4, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. The Lord declares that Abram's own son, his flesh and blood, literally what comes out of the inward parts will be his heir. But the promise doesn't stop there. We've already seen that the Lord has promised Abram that his offspring would be as, as numerous as the dust of the earth. And later he's going to promise Abram that his, his offspring will be as, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. But now in verse 5, the Lord brings Abram outside and says, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Not only will the Lord bless Abram with a child, but Abram will, will become the, the, the father of, of multitudes as numerous as the stars. This evening, if, if it's a clear night, I'd, I'd encourage you to, to just go outside and, and to look up at the stars. 
and remember God's promise to Abram. You're one of those stars. You are one of those stars. You are a child of promise, Romans 9, 7, and 8. You are part of the Lord's promise to Abram. Now in verse 6, we see Abram's response to, to faith. It's Abram's response to the Lord's promise. It's a response of faith. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram's faith made him acceptable to the Lord. Now to be clear, this is not saying that Abram's faith is the result of, of the reassurance of the Lord in verses 4 and 5. The, the verse simply says that Abram believed. It doesn't specify when. This is a, really a summary statement of Abram's faith. His faith has already been on display, hasn't it? All, all the way back to the beginning of, of chapter 12 when, when he left Haran. You read about that in, in Hebrews 11, especially around verse 8. Yes, we know that Abram stumbled in the second half of chapter 12, and he's, he's going to stumble again. We'll see this next week in chapter 16. But the trajectory of Abram's life was that of faith. This verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. In, in Romans 4 and in Galatians 3, Paul uses the faith of Abram as an example of the kind of faith that saves. Paul's demonstrating there that, that Abram is the spiritual forefather of both Jews and Gentiles. But again, we need to be clear. This is not saying that, that Abram's faith earned righteousness. But rather, that, but rather that through faith, righteousness was credited to him. Now, at first glance, that might seem like a minor detail, but the difference is gargantuan. It's a massive difference. It, it's, it's a salvation by grace or it's salvation by works. Friends, faith is not a work. You are not saved by faith. You are saved through faith. We read in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith itself is part of the gift of God. If you are here this morning as someone who has faith, as somebody who has turned from your sin and has faith in Jesus Christ, that faith has been given to you as a gift from God. We read in, in Philippians um, chapter 1 that has been granted to you not only to believe, but also to suffer. It's been granted to you to believe. Your faith is a gift of God. James also quotes this, this verse in James 2.23, but he, he does it to a different purpose. There he's, he's proving that, that Abram's faith is real because it's active in, in his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. So Abram's faith was a, 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 was a real faith, a, a vibrant faith, an active faith. This marks the end of the, the first dialogue between the Lord and Abram where the Lord promises that Abram will father a son and that he'll be the father of a multitude. Now in verses 7 to 21, we have the second dialogue where the Lord confirms the covenant. 
And so here again, the Lord ratifies this, this covenant with Abram, guaranteeing that he will provide him with an offspring and with the land, even though his offspring is going to, at first, for an extended period of time, live outside of the promised land as, as slaves. So again here in verse 7, the, the Lord reveals himself to Abram, reminding Abram that he is the one who brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans into the promised land. This, this really parallels his, his self-disclosure from verse 1. And so this, this, um, this, this comment here where the Lord is reminding Abram of what he's done is a, is a common feature in covenants. It's a, a prologue of, of past benefits. So the Lord is saying to Abram, I've already done this. I've already done this. I'm going to be faithful with the rest of it. But again, also parallel to, to Abram's response in the first half, there's questions that arise in Abram's mind. Verse 8. But he said, Oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He's, he's again, he's, he's requesting assurance of the promise. But the Lord here does immeasurably more than Abram bargained for. Immeasurably more than, than Abram could have ever imagined or, or even understood. In verse 9. The Lord instructs Abram to prepare the animals for sacrifice. Now these animals that are, are represented here are those that, that will be commonly used in the, the sacrificial system that will be instituted under the Mosaic law. And detailed instructions here are, are not given as to what Abram is told to do. He's just told to, to sacrifice these animals. But in verse 10 we see him, we see Abram cutting the animals in half and laying the animals out the, the halves opposite each other in a line with a path down the middle. Now again, this might seem strange to us, but this was, this was a common practice in, in Old Covenant times, in Old Testament times. Assyrian and, and Hittite vassal treaties from, from around this time, many of them speak of a, of a similar practice where, 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 again, both parties of the covenant would walk um, between the parts signifying acceptance of the sanctions and and that acceptance of the sanctions of the transgression of the covenant. So the threat of death, the, the, the gruesome results of the slaughtered animals awaited them if they broke the covenant. Commentator Gordon Wenham explains that this act is an interpreted as an enacted curse. They're saying, may God make me like this animal if I do not fulfill the demands of the covenant. And this, this covenant ritual especially resembles one that we read about in the Bible in, in, Genesis, or sorry, in, in uh, Jeremiah 34, 18, where the people pass through the, the middle of a dismembered calf. And the Lord says, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. And in verse 20, the Lord threatens that the, sorry, the, the Lord threatens that the birds of the air and the birds of the earth will feast on the flesh of those who break the covenant. It's interesting that in verse 11 of Genesis 15, we see Abram chasing away the birds of prey that tried to feast on the carcasses. But that's all that Abram does in this, that's all that he does from here on in this passage. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon them, upon him. Don't miss this. 
the Lord put Abram into a deep sleep. He is sound asleep for the rest of the chapter. So while Abram is in this dreamlike state, the Lord reveals to him in verses 13 and 14 that his offspring will be sojourners and slaves outside of the land. And this, of course, refers to their time in Egypt. The offspring of Abram are going to be there by the end of Genesis, and they're going to be there afflicted for 400 years. Yet, the righteous judge is going to bring judgment on Egypt, and Israel will come out with great possessions. Now, Abram already saw a partial fulfillment of this, didn't he? When he, when, when he left Egypt, Egypt with great possessions after the debacle with Sarai and Pharaoh. But to Abram himself, the Lord promises in verse 15, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. So Abram is going to, to come to the end of his life with, with a sense of contentment and fulfillment. The promise then continues for, for Abram's offspring. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 16. So what could possibly keep the Lord from fulfilling his promise to his people Israel now? His mercy. It was God's mercy that kept him from fulfilling his promise to Abram and his offspring because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. The Amorite can refer to the Canaanites in general or to a specific group of Canaanites. Moses speaks extensively about the wickedness of the Amorites. They, they sacrificed their children to pagan deities. They, they consulted evil spirits. They were sorcerers and so on. Yet the Lord was long-suffering with the Amorites. But instead of repenting, the Amorites continued in their sin. But when God's justice comes down, it is swift, it is decisive, and it is permanent. Israel will return to the land after the 400 years to execute justice on the Amorites. This sheds light on Joshua's invasion of Canaan, doesn't it? This is not an act of aggression. It is an act of justice, of God's justice, his retribution for sin. And so finally, in, in Joshua 11.20, it happens. The Canaanites come against Israel in battle. And we read, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And people stumble at that verse, but, but you need to look at it in the context of Scripture. This is 400 years after the Lord had decreed the 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 punishment of the Amorites. God was long-suffering. He was merciful on the Amorites. This promise would have been a, a comfort to the children of Israel as they, they had just come out of Egypt. Israel could be assured that in spite of, of their suffering, that the promised land would indeed be theirs. It's a promise that they're going to have victory over their enemies because their enemies are the enemies of God. It's a comfort to us, isn't it, as, as we are those who live as sojourners 
outside of the promised land. Friends, one day we will go to be with Jesus. But unbeliever, every day you're adding to the charges against you. God is being long-suffering with you. And unless you repent, his justice will come down on you. And like his judgment on the Amorite, it will be swift, decisive, and permanent. There will be no mercy. So repent of your sin and turn to God in faith. Turn to God in faith. Flee from the wrath to come. Now in verse 17, something amazing happens. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. A fire pot was a, a clay pot that was used for baking bread or for roasting grain for sacrifices. But the symbolism is very important here. Smoke and fire are images that repeatedly represent this, the, and symbolize the, the presence of God. Think of Mount Sinai, wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, Exodus 19, 18. This is another theophany, another representation of the Lord. And, and, and what, what happens here is that the Lord is seen to be passing through the middle of the carcasses. This fire pot and this, this smoking fire pot and this flaming torch represent the Lord passing through the middle on that path between the carcasses. Where's Abram during this time? Remember, Abram is fast asleep. Abram is fast asleep. The Lord passes down that path between those carcasses alone. The only obligation here is imposed by the Lord upon himself. God is invoking a curse upon himself should he fail to fulfill the promise. He's saying, may I be like these animals if I fail to uphold this covenant. O. Palmer Robertson says, that this narrative clearly indicates the essence of a covenant to be a bond in blood sovereignly administered. This indeed is part of the covenant of grace. Verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. The Hebrew says literally the Lord cut a covenant with Abram. The terminology makes sense, didn't it? Because the animals were cut in half. Now finally, the Lord clarifies the promise by naming the specific territories that Israel would be given and the, the specific peoples that they would dispossess. The, the Lord here is, is binding himself to man by a blood oath. He fulfills both ends of the arrangement. This, this pledge to death again is repeated throughout redemption history. The sacrifices are a type that keeps escalating, being focused until the antitype comes into view. Christ Jesus was treated as though he had broken the covenant. And so the covenant curses fell on him as he gave up his life on the cross. 
Deuteronomy 21, 23, we read that a, that a man who is hanged on a tree is cursed by God. This verse is, is a stumbling block for Jews and for Muslims. Jews believe that Jesus was an imposter and was crucified for his sins. Then the Muslims, on the other hand, believe that an imposter hung on the cross instead of Jesus because they view Jesus as righteous. And both groups are completely missing what really happened here. Jesus was cursed for sin. Jesus was cursed for your sin and for my sin. Galatians 3 verses 13 and 15 explain it to us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that Jesus Christ, so that in Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. If you are a believer here this morning, you have the same faith as Abraham. You are saved by the same faith as Abraham. Brothers and sisters, we can be sure that the promised land is ours because Jesus Christ, the supreme offspring of Adam, the seed of the woman, the son of God, died in our place. Heaven is ours because Jesus Christ is ours. Romans 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who shall be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right of, hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor powers, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, you can be confident in the promises of God because our God is faithful. Let's pray together. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you keenly aware of our deficiencies, of our sins, of our failures. Yet, Lord, your faithfulness is immeasurably greater than our faithlessness. Lord, you have given us the same faith that you gave to Abraham. 
just as Abraham believed and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Lord, we thank you that because of Christ, our faith is credited to us as righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own. We're dependent on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the sinless substitute for our sins. We pray this in his holy name. Amen.